Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm Buyer's Guide Editor Chris Nottis. Hello. Hello. Good morning. And Sherlyn is out this week. She is taking a much-deserved vacation, but that's uh, that's all well and good because we're going to be talking about gaming hardware, and I think... Chris, you know portable gaming systems. You have thoughts on games, so I feel like you'll be a good person to chat with about this. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's always super helpful. And uh, drop us an email at podcastengadget.com if you have any questions or concerns or feedback. We typically record a live stream on Thursdays at around 10 a.m. Eastern uh, on our YouTube channel. So you can join us for that. Join the live chat. We will do some Q&A sections there as well. It's always a fun time. So what the hell is Valve's Steam Deck? That was a kind of a big question last week after Valve just kind of dropped the announcement out of nowhere. Joining us to chat about it is Jordan Miner from PC Mag. Jordan, what's up? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. So, uh, I mean, that, that question still stands. What the hell is the Valve Steam Deck, Jordan? Uh, it is a portable computer that, uh, that Valve is putting out. Um, it's a piece of, of Valve hardware, which is not you know mm-hmm. the most frequent thing. Um, so it's kind of exciting when it does happen. Uh, the, the the easiest comparison is that it's a Nintendo Switch, but for PC games, um, it's, a, it's a tablet with controllers attached to it, and you can play your Steam games on the go uh, and dock it if you want. It seems pretty simple. Yeah, we're, we're, this was rumored for a while. I think we had talked about the idea of a Valve Steam Pal, yeah. which I think was what the rumors were calling it. Valve just kind of dropped this out of nowhere. There was no event. There was no really fair warning or anything. It was IGN that had some early looks at it and some hands-ons. But nobody else has touched this thing. Uh, what are your first impressions, Jordan, after seeing this? Uh, first impressions that it looks very big. Um, it's a it's a, six, <laughs> it's a big boy. It's a big boy. Yeah. Uh, people speaking of code names, people were calling it Gabe Gear. Um, mm-hmm. versus the Game Gear, which is another very like unwieldy uh, old handheld. But yeah, it's like a sixteen by ten screen. Um, it's like a pound and a half, I think. I don't have all the specs. Up. <laughs> it's a pound and a half, yeah. Um, it's got these two touchpads on it, and then the the sticks and the buttons are aligned in this kind of weird, mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, like horizontal uh, alignment. Yeah. And they're way up on the top right in the top corners as well, which seems unusual for for any game system. Yeah. 
Um, it's got like four mm-hmm. triggers on the back. Um, it's just, in, you know, I mean, you consider that the, the specs are putting in there, it just seems like it's very substantial and very potentially cumbersome uh, device. That's a, that, that was kind of the first thought I had to Chris, your first thoughts on this thing. Well, I mean, immediately you think <laughs> of, well, they're, they want to compete with the Switch. But the thing is, the amount of buttons, the touchpad, all of the crap they put on this thing, it reminds me all more. It reminds me more of the Wii U gamepad, yes. which was like Absolutely. the kitchen sink of console peripherals. And mm-hmm. they didn't need half of that. So it just it does feel like it might be a little over-engineered, especially considering that they're selling it as, hey, you have your entire Steam library, but a lot of these games aren't made to be played with joysticks or touchpads. You know, it's a it's a weird thing. I was definitely getting Wii U gamepad vibes here too. But here's the thing: I don't hate the Wii U. Me neither. I thought the Wii yeah. U was yeah. That was a. I could see why it was not for many people, but the Wii U was very much for me, and I like that big ass uh, Fisher Price gamepad. They needed to make Jordan. They need to make the mm-hmm. Wii U to get to the Switch. Um, yes, and the idea of absolutely. the Wii U as like a handheld device that wasn't meant to be taken out of the home um, mm-hmm. was kind of fascinating to me. Um, but, but speaking of it being kind of over-engineered, uh, I think the, t- the touch panels, I think, will remind me most of on the Steam controller had similar kind of big, uh, like, touchpad things that kind of mm-hmm. simulate mm-hmm. Uh, mouse controls. And I didn't hate that on the Steam controller. <laughs> I thought that was, like, the most interesting thing about it. Um, yeah. we all, we all but know that what, one didn't have uh, analog sticks, right? It had that one analog stick. Controls. Okay. It had one analog stick and two kind of big circle touchpad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know how Steam Let's... machines turned out. Well, let's uh, we'll, we will talk about steam machines because I feel like that is forgotten history here as we talk about Valve's history with hardware. And honestly, Valve is a company I have a hard time trusting sometimes, too. Uh, but we, we will dive into all that. First, let's break down what is inside the Valve Steam Deck. What makes it different from the Switch? This thing has a 7-inch uh, 16 by 10 screen, like you were saying. So that means it's a little taller than the Switch and most normal 16 by 9 widescreen displays. Um it's interesting. It's running an AMD um, system on a chip with a four-core, eight-thread processor, eight RDNA, two compute units. Uh, I saw Digital Foundry comparing this thing basically to the Xbox Series S. You know, like not a super powerful system, but something that's decent enough to get like good 720p performance, which is what the screen is for. It's got 16 gigabytes of LPDDR5 RAM, which is Honestly, that's surprising because I still review PCs these days, you know, full-size laptops that come with eight gigabytes of RAM and PC makers pretend like that's normal. Um, You've got a choice between 64 gigabytes of eMMC storage, 256 gigabytes uh, NVMe SSD or a 512 gigabyte NVMe SSD. And that really, uh, those are the price points, right? Um, Do you have the prices offhand? Jordan, I know it's it starts um, at three ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, there, there it we is go. On the screen, yeah, uh, three ninety nine for six forty sixty four gigabytes, five twenty nine for two fifty six, six forty nine for the five twelve. What do you think about this? The pricing and the specs. Uh, I think it's really aggressive. Um, it's a lot mm-hmm. cheaper than I would have expected them to come at. Uh, come at um, the the low end model is only fifty dollars more than the the Switch OLED that just uh, yeah. got announced. Um, and you know, obviously that you're you're losing. Your your storage for PC games on that low end is is very is, is not enough. Uh, so you have to invest in a micro SD card. Um, but I mean, when when Gabe Newell says that they're taking a hit on these, um, I, I believe him because I think they, I believe him. Yeah, yeah. Given given what we've seen with this hardware, um, 
the the cool thing about this is it's not just handheld, right? Like it is literally a portable PC, so you could plug into a monitor, you could plug it into a TV, you could uh, plug in a keyboard and mouse. They're selling a dock for it, but I hear it's also going to work with just about any USB C dock as well. So this thing is basically, uh, you know, just a powerful little piece of hardware you could take around, do whatever you want with it. You could install Windows in it because it's a PC. Um, one interesting thing is that this thing is running Linux. It's running, uh, you know, the Steam Deck platform uh, on a Linux variant, uh, but it's still going to be able to play Windows games. And to me, that seems like the biggest hurdle for Valve to fix. What's going on there, Jordan? Uh, yeah, so I mean, to bring back the specter of Steam machines, mm-hmm. um, the, the biggest hurdle for those was that they were running Linux. So that, that hurt their compatibility with a lot of games. Um, but with this, Valve is using uh, a compatibility layer, I think it's called Proton, that they're, uh, that they're rolling out to try to get as many uh, Steam games, like regardless of operating system, compatible with it as they can. Um, mm-hmm. And I know it's not perfect yet. I know some stuff with like anti-cheat software um, is running into some issues. But you know they they are proactively trying to to fix this, this any potential compatibility issues that, uh, that what leads. happened uh, what happened with Steam Deck or Steam machines I remember you know we had a, we had a lot of news around that around 2015 Valve was talking about them it was like we're we're going to turn PC gaming you know machines into console like experiences then they just kind of died do you recall what happened I I the I the first time I went to, the first and only time I've been to Valve's office was to get <laughs> briefed on Steam machines like six years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, uh, again, it was all running Linux, so that, so they couldn't run, like, hack, like, a, a good chunk of the games on Steam. They were all kind of outsourced to, like, outside manufacturers, so you would have companies like Alienware putting out yes. a Steam machine, and then just a Windows PC that was basically the same specs. So it's like, why, like, that was still kind of meant for the home, so it's like, why... Yeah. You know, and then they had they had Steam Big Picture mode, which is is, is more than enough uh, for you know putting your your PC games on TV in a way that makes sense. So it just never made it just it just didn't make sense. It didn't. It wasn't. There was no problem that it was solving. I wonder. And to me, this thing just seems also another thing for hardcore PC gamers. Chris, do you do you have any feelings about the Steam Deck? Like, is it something you'd actually want, uh, or is this market just outside of what you want? Well, first off, I will agree with Jordan that it is very much like thinking back to the steam machines that they didn't work because for mm-hmm. starters, yeah, you had all of these outside companies making them. It reminds me a lot of the 3DO back in the 90s, which I think mm-hmm. only two models came out here in the States. And they were yes. like a year late because they were announced, or at least I remember there was a big press conference at CES 2014. I was actually there one of the few times I've mm-hmm. actually been at anything. And they didn't actually release the systems until like a year later. So the reference specs that Valve had given out were just already way outdated. Uh, This, the fact that they're building it themselves means that like, even if it's delayed, they can make some changes on the fly. Like we're not relying on other companies for a constant back and forth in terms of communication, which I suppose is good. As a consumer, I... I don't know. It's kind of tempting because like a lot of people, I have a huge Steam library filled with things that Mm -hmm. I bought for like a buck or two dollars during a Steam sale. And I don't get to play these games as much as I get to play stuff on handheld because I can't take it with me on the subway or to the park or even just noodle with it while I watch TV. So that's kind of appealing, at least in that aspect it's just like yeah with the small amount of storage or the and the weird ergonomics of it are not 
appealing at all. Like, you know, I have small yeah. girly hands and I can't <laughs> imagine trying to get my thumb up on those thumbsticks. It's it's just so big. I mean, remember when I first reviewed the Nintendo Switch, I was like, this this feels a little too chunky, almost like there's so much bezel around the screen. Like, clearly they can make it smaller and they kind of did with the Switch Lite or make the screen bigger, which they did with the OLED Switch. Um, but this one is just like a whole nother level. Um, I've seen some side by side comparisons. It's about the same height, but extra, extra tall. It's like the big Switch with wings, with extra wings around it. Um, just, just kind of wild. And it does seem like something that's mainly meant for the hardcore Steam gamers, not really for casual players. But, uh, this also is not the only portable PC like this around, right? Like there, I've seen others kind of floating around. I forget the names exactly, but, uh, this isn't the first to do it. I do wonder with Valve's, you know, backing and maybe with the support of some developers, if this one could actually succeed. Uh, Jordan, have you seen any of those other, uh, portable PCs? Um, not me personally, but some of my colleagues mm-hmm. have for sure, like CES and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't remember the names exactly, but I think I think yeah. Alienware I think was was showing one off not too long ago. Well, we we saw that that was a concept okay. uh, 2020 CES CES last year pre pandemic, um, but they showed off this huge uh, concept device. Uh, it was called the Alienware UFO oh, concept, okay. I believe. And it was it was enormous. It didn't have a it had like an eight inch screen, but it was even bigger than this. The controller was just it felt like a giant Xbox, like the Duke controller, but with a right. screen in the middle. It, it was big and unwieldy. I, I, I do feel like a lot of companies are going to go after this uh, just because the hardware is ready. Um, we've seen like what these mobile chips can do right now. And hardware wise, at the very least, like uh, as soon as I saw this, I was wondering, like, is this a. Is this a switch killer of some kind? Hardware-wise, it is. I think the bigger question is, um, will it get the actual user support? Will developers, you know, maybe build some custom profiles so their games can run best at this 720p portable resolution? Will people actually want this thing for, you know, to plug into a TV for tabletop gaming or to use it as a PC? Those are all questions that remain to be seen. Uh, Jordan, Chris, do you guys have any thoughts? Like, would you use this thing beyond portable gaming? Uh, I already pre-ordered one. Um, I love... Same. For, I mean, yeah. four years of the Switch, um, I just realized I love playing games portably, even like big AAA games. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the most the most exciting thing about this to me is, and especially with the fact that it's only 720p, that hopefully they can get, you know, the specs will be able to keep up with some bigger modern games. Um, but yeah, just the idea of playing, just playing games that I couldn't play on this, <laughs> the Switch on this thing uh, is really appealing to me. Um, but it's really... When I think about it, it's really more so those games because they also showed right, off like right. Hades on this thing, and it's like Hades runs perfectly fine on the Switch. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't need this for something like that. Um, I need right. this for games that that can't run on the Switch. Like they showed Star Wars uh, Jedi Fallen Order, yeah, running pretty smoothly. So I don't know if they faked that footage. I think it would have been harder to fake that. Um, it seems like it was running fine. Um, but again, it's 720p. I don't know how much uh, this little, you know, the little mobile Radeon processor will work. Uh, maybe good for handheld. Maybe not so great for, like, playing on your TV, right? Like, it's not going to be a super powerful gaming PC that you could take anywhere. It's just going to be good enough for plugging into monitors. Chris, any thoughts about, like, yeah, what you would do with this if you got it? Yeah, I was just thinking, I don't remember the name of it. Remember Razer had that handheld thing with the, with the two, you know, with the joystick and the buttons on the side. And I remember during all the press Mm -hmm. briefings, the first question anybody asked is, are the controllers detachable? And they were just like, no. And that's one of my first, like, 
hesitance with this looking at this thing is just like I said, it's it's big, it's clunky. Uh, I don't see myself playing it at home, like in terms of like docking it to anything, because I have regular computers for that. They're more comfortable, more ergonomic. This again, it looks like it's just going to be very uncomfortable. But as someone mm-hmm. who plays a lot of visual novels, like that seems perfect for that. Like I don't even need an overpowered machine. I think that the cost of it will is even though it's more than the switch it is offset by the fact that again you can buy all these games in steam sales and they're two three dollars four dollars yeah and you can build a bigger library much faster like i love my switch but i hate that the minimum for some games is like fifteen dollars twenty dollars so i have to be very picky Mm -hmm. with what i buy while like with steam it's like yeah that that's i've been interested in that game it's five dollars okay it doesn't matter if i don't play it for four years There, there's a clear Nintendo tax on Switch games, right? Like, especially when they come to PC and Switch at the same time. The Switch games are usually like 10 bucks higher. Uh, that's not unusual to see. Um, I'll, I'll admit, I also pre-ordered the 256 gigabyte model here, the mid-range one. Uh, I The pre-order was just like easy. You know, like I think that was the thing. Like I may, I could easily cancel that for any reason. Um, it just seemed like if I wanted to get my hands on this, I better do something now. Um the other thing is that I think for a lot of people, um, you could just get a, a backbone controller for your iPhone, you know, or a Razer Kishi, that mobile controller, and do Steam Remote Play, assuming you're at home, but you could do Steam Remote Play uh, pretty well. I've done that quite a bit. I've done Xbox Game Pass streaming, uh, you know, via my phone with those controllers as well. Uh, those things work well. They're only 100 bucks uh, typically. And I feel like uh, that would suit a lot more people more. Uh, I don't know, Jordan, Chris, have you guys thought about those things? I I just, I've used streaming, um, going back to the Switch, I played the streaming yeah. version of Control on the Switch. I don't think I'll ever just fully trust, like, completely streaming games. Mm-hmm. I just feel more comfortable when the thing is just running natively on yeah. the hardware. Um, so, But I if, just, it's, if it's streaming from your house, and then it's, like, just over your Wi-Fi network or something... It, it will be better than control going to yeah from like the, the cloud yeah no yeah, yeah. for sure um I, so at that point it might just be my own like it may not be <laughs> rational but I just I just feel I just feel better when it's running off of the the device mm-hmm. so, especially with a portable device because then I want to be able to take it where I can't like where I won't have internet uh you know necessarily yeah exactly. I think we've greatly like overestimated the capabilities of streaming. I think the past year has taught us we've all had enough Zoom meetings where somebody kind of blinkers out or they freeze up that mm-hmm. not everyone has a good connection. Like I don't, yeah, I don't trust streaming. I would rather have it local, especially as you Jordan points mm-hmm. out, if you want to go on the go. And, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned if, wait, this, is, this thing doesn't have like LTE or anything, right? Like, no, I don't think so. No. Yeah, so I don't, I mean, again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, the most perfect game machine ever created, uh, according the to perfect, def- The perfect. Oh, man. I mean, there is. So and to be clear, there is a difference between like streaming from your home network via Steam Remote Play versus streaming from the cloud like Xbox Game Pass. And I do like Chris, if you have a large Steam library and you have all these games you haven't played, especially visual novels, get one of those controllers and you could, you could just sit in your couch and blast through those things easily on your phone. And your phone screen is probably going to be better than it's certainly better than the Switch's crappy LCD, you know? So it's like, we, we have options now. I do wonder if people are going to start exploring those more. Uh, and you, would, to you like wouldn't my, need, like, super... Yeah. You wouldn't need, like... It's okay to have some lag with a visual novel, like... It's fine. Yeah. It's totally fine. Like, even if your computer was on Wi-Fi and, your you know, the actual system was on Wi-Fi, too, 
It'd be totally fine. Um, I guess back to my main question about this whole thing. Does this feel like a switch killer to you guys? Uh, just because the online conversation really does seem buzzy around the Steam Deck versus the Switch OLED, which I think a lot of people found to be disappointing hardware-wise. Well, the Steam Deck will never have Nintendo games. Uh, yep. Nintendo makes incredible <laughs> games that people really like a lot. Um, so, no. And also, Nintendo just operates at a, a scale that is larger. Like, we see what the, with the pre-order for this thing... If you didn't pre-order within the first like two hours, you wouldn't you you went from getting it like this December to like next August or like Q three next, yeah. next year. So if they can't make enough, then it can't like it won't. They, they've sold like like eighty five million switches. So the the audience that this is targeted towards, um, I think is is it overlaps for sure, but it's not exactly mm-hmm. the same audience. Um, so I think you know things can coexist. Yeah, I think it really depends on the one thing we don't know is it how durable it is is it how does it feel in your hand like because nobody's gotten a hands-on with this thing yet because i know for parents a lot of the appeal of nintendo is these things are tough as nails like drop it on the Mm -hmm. ground throw it across the room and you know we we all love to reference the the game boy that was blown up during the gulf war and (laughs) So if you're a parent and you had a choice between the Switch and the Steam Deck, you could be like, yeah, my kid has a Steam library, but they're also really rough on their things. And I don't know, like until the first reviews come out, a lot of parents are really going to be waiting because they don't want to drop hundreds of dollars on something that their kid like, you know, drops and shatters. Yeah. It's it's also one of those things I do think like the vast majority of parents don't know as much about this stuff as their kids do. So they may not even be aware of like the Steam library, but certainly I've never heard of this company called Valve. Why is this thing costing more than the Nintendo device? I know Nintendo, at least like the Switch seems made for kids, you know, so like there's a lot of that going into it, too, I think. I think that's a little unfair to a lot of parents because I look at my brother and his stepdaughter and I remember once yeah. she was like, oh, he's I'm, a gamer. Yeah, yeah, he's a gamer. It's kind of hilarious, though, because she'll be like, oh, you know, oh, I'm interested in this game. And then I saw it was on sale a week later and I'm like, hey, did you buy this for her? And he goes, yeah, she actually reminded me because she gets the emails now. And I'm like, kids are on this stuff like they know what's coming. They know what stuff is on sale. There's a. I, I feel like I saw it on like Tumblr in the way back when that some somebody's kid was at summer camp and they sent a postcard that and they <laughs> filled it in and it said, so and so are on sale on like on your wish list are on sale. Please buy. <laughs> and I'm like, that's dedication for that child to like know that they, you know, like, mom, please buy me these games while I'm at summer camp. Uh, as I was trying to pre-order it, I was getting texts from my cousins about, hey, is this worth getting? Should I get this now? Blah, blah. I was like, I mean, yeah. I'm trying to get it. So. I do feel like the market, the people who were eager to get the Switch OLED maybe, and I know the pre-orders went up for that and kind of disappeared like super quickly because that that stuff. I do wonder if like that person who wants to Switch OLED or next year Switch Pro maybe would rather just put their money into this, especially if they already have a Switch, you know? So it does seem like a bifurcation of the high end a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you guys feel that way. Um Valve can always just be playing its own thing. Like some people will just have both systems, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't order a Switch, uh, Switch OLED. Um, I mean, I was already probably not going to, but now I'm, yeah. I'm super. And I'm a, I'm a huge Nintendo guy. I love Nintendo. Yeah. Um, again, like the Switch has, has made me just, has convinced me about like playing portably um, all kinds of games. But with it being the same hardware, it being the same specs, I, just, I was just not as interested. If it's a game that I need it to look better, it's probably a game that I was playing on the big screen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like Breath of the Wild is very different as a handheld experience versus on the big ass TV. And I, yeah, like you, 
people have pointed out, it's the same specs. You're not getting any better visual, you know, fidelity or resolution, whatever, on a TV. It's just better if you play it mostly in handheld mode. I don't even know why they even they bothered making it mm-hmm. a traditional switch instead of just making it an OLED switch light or something similar to that. If there's really no yeah. point in upgrading. Well, you, you want the bigger controller. Or you want the bigger screen, basically. I'm looking at our chat room here and people are pointing out like maybe the Steam Deck is more meant to be a replacement for laptop gamers. And that I've seen that argument too. I've reviewed a lot of gaming laptops recently though. So certainly in this price range, you can't really get a good gaming laptop to get like the Dell G3 or G5. You have to go at least 800 bucks or more. But for an overall gaming experience, you get, you get better hardware. You get a lot better hardware with even a cheap gaming laptop. And you can still plug that thing into your TV or something and use it as a semi-console. So maybe that is a bit of the market too. It seems like a, a weird space Valve is playing in right now. I'm really interested in seeing like if they stick with this. That's the first thing because Valve is not good at sticking with hardware. They're really good at killing hardware um and franchises and things like that um but i just reviewed i reviewed the valve index a couple years ago with half-life alex and that thing was kind of like a revelation like oh man valve can actually make great hardware that feels good those controllers are amazing valve uh, half-life alex is a pretty like the one of the best vr games i've ever played so like this company has still got it when they dedicate themselves to it and not just like uh you know, being the Steam King and being the like MOBA cash cow company, you know, like if they actually try, they can accomplish a lot. So I'm excited. And how about you guys closing thoughts on the Steam Deck? I think to that point, though, um, what excites me about this is since it's a PC, even if Valve does abandon it, you'll still have a lot of potential utility of just sure. using it as a computer. Like you'll get all your Steam games, you know, basically like for free running on it. Um, as opposed to something like the Vita, where when its parent company abandons it, it's over. It's dead. Oh, I mean, the, the hacking scene says otherwise. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah it, right. it is it is kind of dead. I want to I need to resurrect my Vita because I miss uh, holding that in my hands. And also, I think that's the only platform I own right now that can play Xenogears. And I just I want I want to play Xenogears again. Re-release that game, folks. Chris, any closing thoughts? Well, I love Xeno Gears and I would love to actually see the second disc made into a real game instead of a bunch of people sitting in a chair talking about all the cool shit you didn't get to do. How how dare you? But yes, also that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, Jordan has a great point that, yeah, you don't have to worry about it not being supported because Steam isn't going anywhere. Valve can pretty mm-hmm. much coast on having Steam for... They're the really good of, at that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I do think it's exciting and I sure one of the reasons they even created hardware is that hardware can often spur game development like you try yes. out new things with your games instead of depending on uh, standard and currently available input methods like you, they, that's what makes nintendo games so good is because they're building them with the hardware in mind or you know and it's a back and forth between the two and that's always been that's been missing for a while now that fewer we have like fewer companies who are doing both gaming and hardware like you know mm-hmm. you know pour one out for sega you know i just i just bought apparently the sega online store sells dreamcast merch so i just bought two dreamcast shirts i'm like yeah sure i i need to wear these i gotta represent dreamcast the best console ever made i just watched that console wars documentary and it's like oh yeah I'm yes sega yeah I don't know how well this Sega. Will, I don't know how well this will play, but I got um, I'm trying to get used to cumbersome dumb controls on handhelds. So I got these uh, <laughs> hoary pads for my Switch. So there you go. Those are oh man, those look really good. Yeah, I actually that like it really a lot. Good. Actually, yeah. Hmm. 
Hmm, I may consider that. I've gotten some switch pads just to get like a better D-pad, so that's the thing. We will be keeping an eye on the Valve Steam Deck, certainly as it gets close to release. Jordan Miner, thank you so much for joining us to chat about this. Where can people find your work on the internet? They can find me on PCMag.com, where I write all sorts of stuff about video games and apps and, and meal kits. Um, they can watch our show The Pop-Off on YouTube, also where I talk about video games with some of our other colleagues. And nice. I'm on Twitter at Jordan W. Miner. Uh, it's Jordan... W and minor like children. Aren't you the real Street Sharks guy? I am. I feel like that's the thing. <laughs> yes, yeah. If people know what that is. They can find <laughs> out what that means. But yes, I'm also that guy. That's a tidbit. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you so much. Let's move on to some other news. And I think one of the biggest pieces of news this week is a, a divorced dad flew to space, right? Jeffrey Preston Bezos, a 57-year-old dad from New Mexico, flew to the edge of space and back again today. Uh, that was uh, written on uh, July 20th uh, this week. And Jess Condit basically took uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos' space trip. He he went up in his big, uh, curiously shaped rocket that uh, could, could not look any more like a giant rocket dick. There are many ways to make rockets, right? We've seen many rockets, but this one, like... Almost seemed like it went the extra level to do that. Um, but yeah, he he successfully flew in a tourist flight to the edge of space and came back down um, with several other folks. Uh, what, are you, what are you thinking about this, Chris? Because we talked about the billionaire space race last week, and I am not, I'm not super impressed with these folks doing this right now. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Oh, what are my thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, me. that's the funny part is like I knew it was coming and that it happened. And then I just kind of didn't care. Yeah. I'm not one yeah. of those people that's like, oh, we're spending all this money on this instead of world hunger. Like I've reached the point where I'm not surprised <laughs> that we're spending money on this instead of world hunger. Uh, it has also been pointed out to me that even back in the 60s, when we were sending men to the moon, there were people protesting yes. saying, hey, we have starving children. Most of America did not support the the yeah the moon landing so yeah yeah which is kind of funny because now it's like all we ever talk about we won the space race and i think you you Uh were at the same uh neil degrasse tyson show i was at years ago and he talked about like uh not i I don't want to necrophilia which is just the weirdest (laughs) word to use for it but he was talking about how we just keep celebrating and talking about the same thing and we just stop moving it's forward true. like our space program is mm-hmm. essentially just like a walking corpse and mm-hmm. so to that effect yeah maybe it's exciting we're sending tourists to space but yeah it, the fact that it's like jeff bezos and it's possibly the worst time you could do this it we are living in an mm-hmm. issue of the onion and i say issue like i'm, I'm being old mm-hmm. school talking about when it was still on print Yes, and, yes. you know, we a lot of horrible things have happened in the past few years. And this isn't horrible, but it is something that could be an Onion article. And but I yeah, we've we've just gone past reality. The whole it is the whole truth yeah. is stranger than fiction. You know, the last five years have basically been the Onion reality. And uh, it is kind of shocking how dumb things have gotten. Uh, there, there are some good takeaways from this. Uh, after his flight, he, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, gave us a few comments. He said, we need to take all heavy industry, all polluting industry, and move it into space and keep Earth as this beautiful gem of a planet that it is. That, that, that I guess you needed to go to space to realize you should take care of this planet and maybe this whole um, rocket company isn't helping, right? 
I think I'm more worried about uh, the day to Earth stood still coming in life that like some, uh-huh. you know, guy comes down and be like, hey, you need to stop shooting things into space because, you know, you're you're effing up space. Because like, I, I that is not a solution. Like, let's just all shove heavy industry in the space that that comes Absolutely back down, not. especially with when you think of the problem of space garbage, which was yes. beautifully illustrated in Gravity. No matter, you know, the movie, no matter what you think of the plot or the acting or mm-hmm. whatever, the fact is that space trash is a huge problem. And the idea that we should just, you know, send all our industry up there like you know, I assume companies will treat it just like they treated the Earth before we had, you know, the EPA, the Clean Air Act. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's what we're already doing, right? It's just junk up there. Uh, another quote. We need unifiers, not vilifiers. When you look out at the planet, there are no borders. There's nothing. It's one planet and we share it <laughs> and it's fragile. This coming from the guy who's running, you know, a company that is known for its inhumane and exploitative working conditions. Uh, their fights against unionizing the things that would actually help their workers. It's uh, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, that yeah. goes into the other quote. I assume you have it in front of you where he thanks all of the Amazon customers yeah. and employees. Let me, let me, so I'm going to quote Jess's article here who I, I could, I could feel the blood running through, you know, in her mouth with this because it's like Bezos, who amassed more than $70 billion in personal wealth last year and regularly pays $0 in federal income taxes and thank these same Amazon employees for paying for his trip to space, he said, I also want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all this. It's true. We did pay for it. It, it does make me glad <laughs> I've kind of cut down on my Amazon spending in the past year, but not that it helped because individual action sure. doesn't really make a big difference in the overall like mm-hmm. you know trend of things. So uh, I mean, one good thing I would say that came out of this is I like that, uh, what's her name, Wally Funk? Got mm-hmm. to go up. She's the oldest astronaut thus far. Yeah, that's that's yes. great. She was denied the chance to go to space way back when. So that's actually a kind of cool thing that she at least got her, what is it, 11 minutes, you know, up there. I mean, it'd be great if they could just keep sending her up there just as like a big F you to John Glenn and, you know, everyone else <laughs> who held her back. <laughs> Absolutely. That is, I mean, hey, one good thing. Uh, c- congrats, Jeff Be- Bezos, on like making, uh, make, building the rocket company riding the rocket, uh, it seems like this is going to be the the main focus of his life after this because he is not CEO of Amazon anymore, right? So he has a lot more time to focus on this. We'll be keeping an eye on all this, folks. But yeah, I don't. The, the world is on fire. Major cities are being flooded. It's uh, th- This seems like not the best time to play Rocket Wars. Let's move on to some other news. Um, two, there was a weird thing over the last week where offhandedly President Biden said that uh, Facebook is killing people with vaccine misinformation. And Facebook quickly came back and was like, uh, they rejected that claim. They said they're working really hard to like push vaccine information out there. Uh, they did not, you know, they did not actually admit that a lot of, uh, a lot of anti-vaccine conversations happening on their platform. They're not doing much about it. Um, this was a weird back and forth. But I do think um, and then Biden ended up backtracking and he was like, OK, OK, Facebook, Facebook isn't killing people. It's uh, it's the bad people on Facebook. It's the, you know, the vaccine misinformers, the people who are out there spreading misinformation. They're the real culprits. Do you have any thoughts about this back and forth, Chris? Because I don't think it's been particularly great or helpful. 
Yeah, I mean, Facebook could come out and be like, we have developed a system that just magically deletes without, you know, intervention, the algorithms accurately mm-hmm. every single time, every piece of vaccine misinformation, which is not true. Like when they put out that statement, the top post about vaccines on Facebook was from Marjorie Taylor Greene. So mm-hmm. like clearly, yeah, their their systems or whatever they have in place aren't that effective. Like somebody still saw see these sees these posts before they get taken down by the system or by human intervention. But the bigger issue is that Facebook is reaping the result, like years of not moderating itself very well. Yep. Like it doesn't matter that now they're finally jumping on like the misinformation train, is that they've using the word train again, they've trained an entire generation of older folks to not believe the, 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 you know, mainstream media to only listen to stupid, you know, image macros. And like, this is something that should have been nipped in the butt years ago. Like, it's just Mm -hmm. people take all of their information off of Facebook. Like you can try to steer the sources in the right direction, but the damage has already been done and we're Mm -hmm. just living with it. People who have been on Facebook for the past 10 years now turn to Newsmax for the news. I mean, it shocked me when I discovered that was on my cable system and it wasn't just like a few years ago. And like, there is more right-wing news on my cable than Mm -hmm. there is like left-wing news. I mean, I have CNN and MSNBC, but then you have Newsmax and Fox News and what was the other one? The the America One Network. Oh, on. Yeah, the One America Network is on there. And I'm like, you officially outnumber what we would consider left wing on my system. So yeah, they've programmed an entire generation of people. The, the damage has been done. And I don't, Facebook doesn't seem to have a plan to kind of fix that. They're only doing damage control at this point, you know, with nothing to roll back all of the problems they've created. I think one good take on all of this I saw is is from Charlie Wurzel, who we talk about quite a bit on his newsletter, Galaxy Brain. He's saying the Biden-Facebook fight is part of the problem because it, it's kind of the wrong question, right? Is Facebook killing people? Because then Facebook will just get defensive and come back saying, no, no, look at all the ways we're not killing people. But it's not super constructive. It doesn't actually lead to anything. Um, but I think what you were saying was true, Chris. Like this is this is a problem that has been kind of building up for a while. This is a company that has pursued engagement at all costs. And unfortunately, when you engage in a communication with humans, you're going to get a lot of bad stuff. You're going to get a lot of, you know, humans being garbagey to each other. And uh, they just don't have the mechanisms in place to really deal with that. We will see where this all goes. Another bit of news that I think was really terrifying. There was this uh, basically combined reporting from the Washington Post and several other places about NSO Group's uh, Pegasus spyware software, which was used by governments and uh, private uh, organizations, it seems to, to spy on journalists, activists, uh, people in government. Um, The Washington Post saying is that uh, this software successfully hacked 37 phones, including all those folks, and two women close to uh, the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered. Um, So... This is kind of wild because what it really seems like is that NSO Group has developed this spyware that can be installed in Android and iPhones, uh, can be installed without even like without the person even needing to click a link or something like zero it could be click. A surreptitious, zero click. It could be a surreptitious, um, 
you know, text message that just immediately drops uh, spyware onto your device. Uh, it can read all of your information. It can track your location. It can trigger the microphone and video camera remotely. Basically, all the stuff we've been, you know, kind of afraid of and you've seen in like spy fiction is uh, is true. This goes back to just a long history of uh, spyware and privately developed spyware and how, you know, governments and other folks are taking advantage of it. This is going to be an ongoing story and we're going to see where all this leads. But this reminds me a lot of these of the stories from um, that Edward Snowden basically helped to promote, like the PRISM stuff and the U.S. government's widespread data tracking. Um, it just seems like the next evolution of that whole thing. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this, Chris? Oh, I have so many thoughts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right that it's definitely like the worst nightmare. Like we... Decades of media have like trained people to think that hacking is like can be done anywhere, any place yes. that a person can just remotely access your computer and completely take it over, which, you know, you and I know for the most part is not true. Like most hacking, you know, or, you know, to say like black hat hacking is done through social engineering. Like you send people a link, you send them an email and they end up clicking on it and putting in their login credentials without realizing what's going on. And the fact that this is a zero is zero click, not all of it was zero click. I read the entire mm -hmm. Amnesty yes. International report and it's like, First of all, I was wondering, like, should you guys even be revealing what you've noticed? Because, like, <laughs> yeah. you're just telling them how to hide better. Because I, I thought what was interesting is, like, yeah, it's it's Android and iPhone, but they were able to study more iPhones because there were more traces of this malware left behind in the systems. Mm -hmm. And we don't know if Android is less affected because it just hasn't left any traces on Android phones. I found that a little bit scary. I also, mm -hmm. as a long term like Windows user who's always listened to people be like, haha, I love having a Mac. I can't get viruses. And I'm like, oh well maybe that's true. But now we have your phones are equally as susceptible to being, mm -hmm. you know, bugged. Because I said it was probably up to like 50,000 people. It was just the number you gave was the amount of phones they directly looked at. And yes. I thought it was, it was interesting. It was a list of 50,000 phone numbers. So a lot of people and that was a thousand people who didn't weren't actually criminals, basically, from what we know. Yeah, the NSO has been like, oh, we only licensed this out to spy on terrorists and criminals. But yeah. then, yeah, you see like Jamal Khashoggi's fiance and his wife were both mm -hmm. on that list. And I don't, you know, they're clearly not in that group. Um, I mean, it, what, the one good thing, and this is our American privilege speaking, is that they weren't mm -hmm. able to infiltrate American phones, or rather, I should say, phones on American networks. And a lot of that has to do, again, reading the the little autopsy report or whatever you want to call it from Amnesty International, is that some of it was direct uh, network infiltration, possibly like hardware-wise, because some of the, mm -hmm. the zero-click exploits were... Uh, people just going to a random website like uh, yahoo.fr that was mentioned in the in the, the article. This isn't just me shilling for our parent company here, but mm -hmm. then it was redirecting them somewhere that was, you know, dumping the malware onto their system. Like it just, they, and it wasn't even consistent. Like it would 
do every other access to that URL or like every few. So it was very hard to like pin down. Like it was a cannot reproduce kind of situation by keeping it just randomized. Yeah. I thought that that like I the report was great. Like that was some riveting reading, but it is terrifying to think like how widespread this is. The fact that the mm-hmm. company's trying to be like, hey, we we only license mind you, they have to get permission from the Israeli government to sell the software. So that's like, I think the bigger scandal is like, not just that this private company is doing this, but technically there's, they have government approval and it's just, yeah. (laughs) And NSO says that they, they pull their, you know, their technology from people who are abusing it. I don't know how much we can believe that. There's also reporting that, uh, that those stories about the, the Saudi princesses, right? Uh, Princess Latifah and her stepmother, Princess Haya, who a couple of years ago, like that was that was the news about them like escaping. They were their names were on this list, too. So that's how the Saudi government was able to find them, even though they had this really elaborate escape plan. It just sounded terrifying. Like basically, yeah, they, they could be tracked anywhere or people could get full access to their phones and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, one of the things, yeah, one of the things mentioned in the article, and I do feel like they didn't have direct evidence of this, but there was a, I believe, a Mexican journalist who was gunned mm-hmm. down at a car wash while he was like waiting yeah. for his car to come through. And at least like the Washington Post noted, yeah, we don't know for sure, but it certainly seems suspicious and like likely that they might have used this software to find out where he was at that particular moment. Uh, you know, it was, I mean, a lot of interesting things. Like, again, it's not U.S.-based. This is mostly overseas mm-hmm. right now. Most of the, the compromised servers were in Germany. So I think mm-hmm. we're going to have to have a long conversation with Germany in addition to Israel about this. I I do worry mm-hmm. that this is not going to go anywhere. Like, it's going to be like the Panama Papers, which was a big scandal, but most people have no idea what that is or they've completely forgotten about it at this point. Yeah, yeah. That one didn't have, like, a huge impact on daily life for a lot of people. But honestly... Hey, after uh, the 2016 election, the Brooklyn Public Library was running these, uh, you know, these talks about 1984 and are we living in 1984, basically like a a weekly. It was I think it was a monthly monthly discussions around the book. And I led some of those chats, you know, with uh, people who are well read from around Brooklyn and uh, all over New York. And nobody had heard about the prism stuff. Nobody had heard about, you know everything that Edward Snowden has helped to reveal and the government surveillance going on there. So if like that crowd, you know, of uh, Brooklyn library supporters and well-read people didn't capture that major piece of news, it makes me wonder like who, who's actually paying attention to all this. Um, I do want to shout out, I had a chat with uh, the documentary director, Alex Gibney in 2016 about his, uh, his film Zero Days, which was about Stuxnet and the, uh, you know, why we need to talk about cyber war. But in that conversation, um, he also talked about the need to like, we need to have some rules for this spyware, like this stuff that is being developed by these companies. Um, because basically like this is, these are the new nuclear weapons. These are weapons that could be used to get any piece of information you want or track people immediately. And we need to really be more cautious about how this stuff is getting out there because it is absolutely terrifying. So yeah, we will be keeping an eye on the story. Chris, anything else you want to mention about this? No, I'm good though. I, again, I don't, Mm -hmm. I think with a lot of people, it's just, they only care about privacy if it's inconveniencing them. Right, right. 
I mean, you look at, yeah, we all have smart speakers in our apartments at this point. And, you know, if you told people, you know, like that thing might still be listening to you. And like, that was the fear at first, but now people can't live without having these smart speakers in their homes. So like that, Mm -hmm. that concern kind of faded into the ether, even, even as I see evidence that maybe they are listening in. uh, Did I tell you the story about the, the, the well thing? with my no. parents. I'll, I'll tell this here. I, I told Jordan before the, this, this call started was that I went to my parents a few weeks ago and I was talking to them about the Manhattan well murder. I don't know how this came mm-hmm. up in conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the short version for the people who are not familiar with it is that this was the first recorded murder trial in the United States. Yeah. Uh, this guy supposedly murdered his like fiance, like they were supposed to elope. And then they found her at the bottom of a well, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr were his defendants. I mean, the defense lawyers, which is referenced <laughs> in the musical. Mm-hmm. And he was found not guilty. And the well where her body is found still exists. You can go visit it at uh, it's a men's clothing store on Spring Street here in New York called Coase. Oh, boy. You just go into the basement. There's a suit. There's murder well suit. And I'm telling my parents about this because I think it's like the mm-hmm. funniest. It's just one of those funny New York things that you are, as yeah. I tell people, you're yeah. constantly walking over ghosts all the time. Yeah. And later that night, like maybe an hour or two later, I'm leaving the house. I'm saying goodbye to my mom. And I hear my father, like he opens up his laptop and he goes on YouTube. And I'm all of a sudden I'm hearing like, Alexander Hamilton, well, Soho, murder. And I'm like, wait, is he watching a video about this? That's really nice that he was actually listening to me. And I walk over to say goodbye mm-hmm. to him. And I'm like, oh, you actually looked it up because I mentioned it. And he's like, no, no, it was just in my recommended videos. Hmm. <laughs> there, there are a lot of stories like that about people saying they've had a conversation and then like something came in. And given how deeply these companies have practiced just with our online habits, you know, and across sites and stuff. M- yeah. Maybe there is something, there is something there, or at least like if Amazon is just like, yeah, we're selling some of this data for ad tracking. Um, you know, it's not, it's not identifiable. It's fully anonymous, um, but it still can be tracked back to you. I don't know. Anything that is, that is really curious. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that's anonymous could ultimately be tracked back to people. Like I remember the app mm-hmm. secret and, you know, you could post things like, oh, I hate my boss and I want to kill him. And, you know, <laughs> you think, oh, it's anonymous, except that people could figure out if they unfriended a bunch of people like they did this systematically yeah. over a week. They could usually figure out who posted what. So nothing. Absolutely. Nothing is anonymous. Like you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, just just got to. <laughs> A little bit of social engineering. Like I have, you know, Finstagrams, which are easy to find because Instagram is like, hey, you should check out these other accounts to all my friends. And I'm like, no, no, those are supposed Uh, to be secret. (laughs) All right, let's move on. We've got some fun stories to wrap all this up. So basically billionaires are in space spewing, you know, pollution into space. Uh, Facebook is not acknowledging its role in vaccine misinformation. Love it. And uh, private spyware is getting more terrifying. So let's talk about some fun news. Uh, You wanted to talk about AnimeTube, which I have not heard about this Kickstarter, but it sounds hilarious. Yeah, it's a little bit old news at this point, but Uh I don't think it really went beyond like the Anna Twitter community. That would be anime mm-hmm. Twitter. It's a, it's a bunch of weebs. They are some serious nerds. It's all, hey. Yeah, I stay away from that, yeah. even though I'm wearing an Evangelion shirt right now. But yeah, I stay away from that. Yeah, well, these, these are my people. I drink with them. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm obligated to at least like read their tweets. And so anime tube was a Kickstarter at the beginning of the month where uh, I would assume these people are just fans who are unhappy with the current state of things. You know, they don't really like Crunchyroll and 
high dive and uh was it nozomi i don't remember all of the services they, they don't like point. paying for things is that the the argument well that was that's that's one of the arguments because uh-huh. this new service that they were touting <laughs> that they were like oh we're building the service from the ground up it's everything you mm-hmm. ever dreamed of and of course one of the big things is like it's gonna be free and we're gonna have yeah. all of these old shows that aren't available on Crunchyroll and netflix and amazon and it's gonna yeah, be we're great. gonna bring escaflone back yeah yeah and they're what? like and it's like oh hey we need i forget the exact amount it was probably something mm-hmm. like a few hundred thousand i think they had raised one hundred and ten thousand, but the the goal was like two hundred thousand. and the thing is every single person who's involved in the anime licensing industry knows this number doesn't pay for shit like uh-huh. it does not pay for the developers much less mm-hmm. pay for they said they wanted to have thousands of titles and they said okay if this is the money you're raising like this is the amount and this is the amount of titles you want you are saying you're paying like $3 per title, which is not mm-hmm. how it works. Anime licensing is incredibly expensive now. Like there's a reason why a lot of the big titles are going to Netflix and Amazon and Hulu because they are the ones who have the money for it. Like I know that absolutely uh, the people at ADV have said like, if we, I mean, if we could pay what we paid for Evangelion now, like that's, yeah. that was such a bargain. That is, you know, Evangelion and DBZ. <laughs> that they milked, that they milked for two episodes per VHS. I remember ADV. I'm not going to take your tears over here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're not even around anymore. If I, no, they're okay. not. They're not. Yeah. Funimation yeah. is the only one left, like of the big ones from that <laughs> era, really. Funimation and Viz. And mind you, Funimation mm-hmm. and Viz had like parent Japanese companies supporting them up. But yeah. So all of these people were going all over Twitter uh, talking about how this was a bunch of bull crap and reporting it to Kickstarter, and they eventually got it taken down. And now, mm-hmm. of course, you get the usual, like very much like the conservative playbook, like all the haters signed up for our Kickstarter so they could like read our Patreon and read our backer mm-hmm. updates and report us to Kickstarter. You know, all these people who just don't really like anime, which is, of course, crap. Like the people who yeah. are reporting it are the ones who know the most about the industry and they love anime the most. And though it's been taken down from Kickstarter, they're still like blasting out on like social media about how they've been unfairly maligned and how they're going to bring it back. I wouldn't be surprised if it shows up on Indiegogo because Indiegogo isn't as strict with its campaigns. Just that's where all like the comic skate people ended up after they got kicked off of Kickstarter. It's just, it's it's not great because there is clearly a market. Like people do want better anime streaming, but it requires so much money. And all right now it's all concentrated again with like Funimation and Viz and then you have, you know, all the streamers who are going to Japan directly. So that's mm-hmm. that was basically my thing about it. It's just it's this like insane story. The fact that this even got to one hundred thousand yeah. dollars on Kickstarter and it was a project we love on Kickstarter, apparently, because Kickstarter doesn't know crap about the stuff they're promoting. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I, I do wonder if part of it is just like I am. I guess I'm a 90s anime fan. So it's like when I see the kids these days whining about how hard it is to access things, I just um it's like, buddy, did you wait two months for your third gen VHS fan sub of Rurouni Kenshin to come to you? No? Then then please shut up. Yeah. Please I, shut up. I own 22 <laughs> volumes of Card Captor Sakura on DVD. Uh-huh. Like, yes. you know, like which ha- which from Pioneer, which doesn't even do anime anymore. Yep. So yes, mm-hmm. we all we all have our memories. I have my memories of going to Chinatown and buying my my VHS that have like three episodes on them and it's take ripped mm-hmm. off. Sometimes it's ripped off TV, sometimes it's ripped off of a VCD and they leave the menus up and you're just yes. like Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I got the the Dragon Ball Z Broly movie. I remember I bought in Chinatown once and that that was that was an experience that was 
that was fun, guys. You used to have to really work for your anime. Anyway, let's talk about let's talk about memes. Let's talk about sad memes, specifically sad Wolverine, who will be immortalized as an action figure from Mondo. And I, I love this. I love this so much because uh, as I was growing up as a 90s anime fan, I was also like a 90s X-Men the Animated Series fan. That series doesn't really hold up. But there are certainly elements of it that I think are ridiculous, and it is fun to see them kind of pop back up. The sad Wolverine meme of him laying in bed staring at a photo of uh, Jean Grey and the interloper Scott Summers. Uh, Like, I I think it speaks to all of us, right? This was a fun one to write up, but also it's a great meme because, like, we're all, like, we're all at home staring at Instagram just, like, sigh (laughs) about things on our screens, yeah. Yeah, I do love that we've gone into like this meta commentary with our toys now. Like before, uh-huh. you know, you just bought a Wolverine figure because you were 10 and you just wanted to pretend to slash the Cyclops figure. And now yeah. we've gone into like this meta thing where okay, this is a toy but not really a toy. You're going to leave it in the box and only uh-huh. people who were young between the era the like 91 or 92 to 95 are really going to get this joke. Because uh-huh. I, I, I see it appear online. I never see anyone younger share it because for them, like X-Men, the animated series wasn't a thing until recently. Now that you can yeah. rewatch it on Disney Plus. so Well, also like the memes, you don't have to be like, you don't have to understand the meme. You don't have to understand where it came from to understand the power of the meme, right? Like I think I see young people using it all the time and like re- refashioning it because it's just funny. It is a funny image of a grown man in his full yellow spandex outfit just sitting in bed. It's like Wolverine does not take off his costume to relax, I guess, but he's going to sit there and pine after Jean Grey uh, in bed. Just like, I think it speaks to like the the awful animation of the animated series too. It's just like, we're not, we're not going to draw, you know, <laughs> the rest of Wolverine lying down. We have a lot of this done already. Um, so anyway, this is going to be a Comic-Con exclusive. It'll run you $200 going to go for pre-orders on july 23rd so that is friday um i could could see some some people really being down for this i do think it's funny it comes with a bunch of accessories including uh different hand figures um and also there is a morph head which i feel like the drama around wolverine and morph was the thing that really got me into the series that was like first episode stuff right where morph died yeah he eventually came back yeah Yeah, no, I mean, that's why I say this is definitely aimed at people of a certain age group. I mean, if I mean, the fact that it's a uh, one six scale figure, which is Barbie size. So if you were that kind of person, you could open the box and you could like get a redheaded Barbie and you can put them in all sorts of poses. Like it feels like you could decapitate a Ken that looks like Scott Summers. Yeah, yeah. That's every kid. Every kid looks like Scott. That's every kid. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, oh, I do think it's interesting. I, I mentioned to you before this that there are a lot of meme toys. Like, I think you can get a Masters of the Universe He-Man that's kind of like the what's going on mm-hmm. video. And I own a little uh, a dumpster fire toy. I'm going to show it on the video. Sorry sure. about audio Great. only people. And, you know, our, our colleague Nicole has the This Is Fine dog on her work desk. So there's definitely like a market for that. Uh, what's the company? YouTubes, you know, with T-O-O-B-Z. They sell like they're going to be selling a Hot Ones uh, set. And they've sold like the Why You Always Lying guy and, of course, Lo-Fi Girl, like multiple versions of her. So there's like, wow. And I don't again, I do not think this is for young people because young people do not have that money. Like it's for. Yeah, the statue, the statue is for the people who 
under, both understand the meme and live through this. And I would, if I had an extra 200 bucks, yeah, I sure as hell would buy this. I love Wolverine. He was, he was one of the first characters I like really into because there's so much pathos behind this character, right? He's immortal. He can never truly feel love. Um, it, it's all these things. I am waiting for the other Wolverine meme, the one of him like in the foreground and Scott and Jean kissing in the back. Like make that a diorama, make that a statue because uh, I think that would also be hilarious. Anything else you want to mention on this, Chris? Uh, no, though you're right. That would probably make a better mm-hmm. statue. That would be a better conversation piece because I feel like I buy this thing. I put the box on my shelf. Like, maybe one or two of my friends and my mother will get the joke. Which, Uh again, my mom, she's in her 60s, but she loved the X-Men cartoons. So at least, yeah. So this is a toy for you, me, and my mom. (laughs) Exactly. It is, uh, that's a show that, you know, you go back and watch Batman the Animated Series and you're like, man, this show was ahead of its time. The writing was so good. The quality of the animation, everything was fantastic. You go back and watch X-Men the Animated Series and you're like, what the hell? Were we thinking we just this is garbage? Um, but I still love it. You I, know, it I, it's I a think weird it holds, feeling. I think it holds up more than you say it does. But the animation <laughs> the, was was sloppy. The, the animation and also the writing. Like, um, so when I used to run uh, the anime club in college, occasionally we we'd pick like we did the 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 Phoenix episodes and stuff. And going from watching like Cowboy Bebop dubbed to this, we're like, oh, oh man. Childhood nostalgia does not hold up at all. Uh, it is hilarious, though. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping a new generation of folks discovers the insanity of that. I'm also hoping that the MCU can finally bring in X-Men. Please, for the love of God. Let's move on to what we've been working on. Um, I've been talking about the Vive Pro 2 for a while and the other, the Vive Focus 3. My Vive Pro 2 review is going to be going up soon. So keep an eye out on that for Engadget. I'm really digging it. Um, this is the first 5K PC VR headset I've played. So, you know, the one that the combined resolution across both lenses gets close to 5K. It looks incredible. It's just super expensive. It is $1,400 for the entire kit or $750 for just the headset if you have the older kit. This is for VR, like the VR faithful, the VR, the VR crazy folks. But uh, it was really fantastic to play like an hour of Half-Life Alex in stunning sharp resolution uh i'm I'm just gonna play that whole game again that game's great chris what are you working on uh well how i feel about vr like i don't own a Uh vr headset and i think that's an insane price but i do know that this eventually trickles down which is great like eventually me or my brother can buy Mm -hmm. like this technology it's just gonna take a few years but i mean you can get the quest 2 now you can get the quest 2 for 299 yeah I think that's, that is pretty good. I think that's what my brother did. I do not know yeah. for sure. I do not keep up with his latest purchases. You know, he <laughs> does watch our videos sometimes. Uh, what I'm working on, like a few things. Uh, I was going to give a shout out to there's a new Disney Plus show that premiered this week about the attractions. It's called Behind the Attraction. And yes. I, I got a preview of the entire season. Only half of it is actually available on Disney Plus. I actually sat down, watched every single episode. And then I watched, I watched every episode of the Imagineering story just so I could compare the two. Like I, you're just hardcore here. Yeah. Yeah. I went way deeper on this than a human being. Is is the Imagineering story, the one where they just like uh, paint out all the cigarettes from Walt Disney's hands. Like that's the one that's like reworked history a little bit, right? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I wasn't really paying attention to that. I do know the Imagineering story was very chronological. It was like Mm -hmm. way back in the thirties when Walt Disney was with his kids 
at the fair, at the, uh, the merry-go-round, mm-hmm. and he couldn't join in, and he felt sad. So he come up, <laughs> uh, you know, they have this myth, this these because that story, yeah. from what I've heard, is bullshit. Like that yeah. did not actually yeah. happen. He is, he was already thinking about building like Disneyland before that. But um, mm-hmm. what I liked about this new show and why I recommend people watch it is it, it's very snackable. Like each episode is just mm-hmm. one attraction. So you don't have to sit through like a hagiography of Walt Disney mm-hmm. and Roy Disney, you know, Roy E and Roy O. Like you don't have to put up with that crap. It's just like, mm-hmm. here's the Jungle Cruise. It's got animals. And of course, yes, there's a movie with The Rock, who is also the executive producer of this show. Like it is such an obvious advertisement, but it's at least one that's fun to watch. Uh, aside from that, like working on that, um, I've been checking out the new Turtle Beach Recon Controller, which has been mm-hmm. announced. It just hasn't been reviewed yet. Hopefully we'll have something up coming shortly. And uh, I've also been checking out some like designer keyboards that have been like all the rage on Kickstarter, but they kind of they're not great. They're just not great. I'm going to say that it's the, the As- Asio makes like these really fancy like wood with like round little buttons and and. I know these things are hot on TikTok and I'm not into that at all. Like, you you know, I'm the keyboard person at Engadget somehow. Like, I stumbled into this and I have just stacks of keyboards next to me. And I like this. I'm like, we can do better. You can do, if you want something pink or white, you know, go to Corsair. Like Corsair makes awesome looking, mm-hmm. awesome feeling keyboards. That's that's my recommendation for this week. Awesome. Let's move on to our pop culture picks. I also know. You've been watching something on Netflix you wanted to shout out, right? Yeah, I mentioned you didn't watch We the People yet, I guess. Uh, I have not, no. So that premiered July 1st, like just ahead of, you know, Independence Day. So, mm-hmm. And it is a animated series. I believe, like, the executive producers are the Obamas. And the idea is... They have some good Netflix shows already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The idea is basically it's like Schoolhouse Rock, but with like hip hop and pop mm-hmm. music. And you have the best episode is Checks and Balances because it's a song. It's a song by Kirsten Anderson Lopez, you know, the Frozen and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Agatha all along. Like she's a great writer. And the performers mm-hmm. on it include David Diggs and Lynn manuel Miranda, you know, doing what they do best, rapping. And it's just amazing. It's a banger. Like I listen to it over and over and over cool. again. Cool. But other tracks, like they have, you know, Adam Lambert and her. Yeah, I see the like the little clip playing here. Yeah. Baby Retta, yeah. who I have never heard of, but <laughs> I'm, cause I am an old, but this seems like a good thing just to produce, just so you could like get this going around YouTube, right? Like maybe not everybody's going to tune into the Netflix thing, but make it a YouTube clip that gets really popular and maybe we'll filter into somebody's feed. I think is kind of smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not like the deepest look into them. These, these episodes right, are only right. like three to four minutes long. So they're perfect for YouTube. And it's very, I, I use the word snackable. I use that again. Like you can just put it mm-hmm. on and be done in like half an hour. Though the algorithm on like Netflix doesn't quite understand that the episodes are only three minutes long. So you'll watch like five episodes and it's like, are you still watching? Are you still watching? It's <laughs> like, yes, I'm still watching. I, you you asked me that yes. five minutes ago. You know? But it, it's it's a really, it's really nice and moving. And it's like a quick hit. If you want to feel like American pride in this era of like, just utter chaos like it's it's nice it's a little up op- too optimistic for my taste sometimes like they have a one of the the shorts has a very diverse like male female multiple race supreme court and i'm just like <laughs> yeah no oh one day yeah a yeah. hundred years from now we'll get there um shout out to the obamas i think for doing really interesting things with their their all these media deals uh i'm also a big fan of waffles and mochi which is the kids food show that actually teaches kids quite a lot about food and my, you know, 
adults too. Like my wife is learning stuff from this, uh, but my daughter loves to cook with me. So she is really down with waffles and mochi. I want to shout out a couple of things. Uh, this way up on Hulu, which is a series that just came back for its second season. Uh, this is a series uh, created by, just getting down to the cast list here, by Ashling Bay, uh, co-starring Sharon Horgan. Ashling Bay plays, um, at the very beginning of the first episode, she is a woman who's coming out of uh, a mental institution, basically, after having a breakdown. Sharon Horgan's her sister, who's trying to help her out through life. And it's a really fun, it's, it's more of a dramedy, I guess, but it's a comedy with drama elements. It's a really funny show. I love their relationship together. Has a lot of people I like in it too, like Indira Varma. Um, and it's just really sweet. It is a really sweet story about like this these two sisters who are trying to support each other. Um, and then almost like their their life situations start to change a little bit too. Like as one starts to get more grounded, the other starts to lose herself. I'm really digging it. And also it's like one of those like 22 minute long episode shows that you can snack pretty easily. Uh, so yeah, shout out to This Way Up on Hulu. I'm really digging it and I'd recommend it to everybody. Another thing I just want to quickly say is like, I've, I've seen A Quiet Place Part 2. It is, it's good. It's fine. I have a lot of issues with it. I feel like, man, John Krasinski, of all people, you know, has proven himself to be a really capable uh, horror slash action set piece director. But I'm I'm beginning to lose... Uh, I don't really understand these people as humans anymore. I'm not going to spoil too much, but we reviewed it on my podcast, The Filmcast. Um, so you could go check out my full review there. Have you seen this yet, Chris? I have not seen part two. Oh, congratulations okay. on spinning off uh, with The Filmcast. Yes, we have, yes, we've spun off. No more Slash and also um, new theme song upcoming. So that's going to be fun. I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, this is streaming on Paramount Plus right now, or you could rent it or whatever. I kind of like Paramount Plus, even though it, it does it's not a thing that most people would be watching, uh, mainly because it has all the Robert and Michelle King shows. So like Evil and The Good the good Bite and everything. Um, more for that than the Star Trek stuff for me. Uh, but I would I'd recommend watching this. It's just uh, it's really short. I feel like it doesn't give us a good sense of the world. It's one of those movies where like plot conveniences really make lives, uh, make the characters lives pretty easy at times, uh, even though it's about living through post-apocalyptic hellscape. But anyway, it's well-made, worth a watch. Um, That's A Quiet Place, part two. Anything else you want to shout out, Chris, before we wrap things up? Well, I did want to ask, uh, one of Mm -hmm. the things I liked about the original Quiet Place was that I actually thought it was good for a kid's first horror movie. Like, if you Mm. wanted to introduce your kid to horror movies, that's a good movie because there's no gore in it there's no la- bad language the protagonists uh, include two children who get it's to very actually... straightforward yeah. yeah 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 i think like it depends on your kid but i think for like a maybe a seven or eight year old sure it could it could be a good thing and the kids like get once again have a more prominent role i feel like this one is a little like you see more of the monsters you know, like in the first movie, the monsters were mostly out of view until towards the end. Whereas here is like they they assume you know what the monsters are, right? So you see them. Um, I think there are some bits that are really harrowing and kind of scary. So eight or ten year olds, maybe, but I d- I don't know. I don't know what a kid's first horror movie is because I was watching you know really scary stuff when I was really young, and there were no rules when I was growing up. So I don't know. What was the earliest horror movie you could remember, Chris? That I can remember was probably the 80s Night of the Living Dead, Mm, which I was like five or six and I had nightmares after that, you know, because I should not have watched that. I should not have watched the movie where like hearts get ripped out and like 
ears yeah. get bitten off and, you know, send more cops and all that. Uh, what made it worse was that I was staying at my grandmother's house at the time in Puerto Rico, and she lives down the street from a cemetery. Ooh, so, yeah. yeah, that's I yeah. hated zombies until I was 30. Just just mm-hmm. to give you like how big of a mistake this ended up being. Letting me watch this movie was a terrible mistake. Like <laughs> it wasn't until The Walking Dead premiered that I was like, yeah. yeah, zombies aren't that bad. They're not. Well, yeah, because The Walking Dead doesn't make them that scary. Uh, but yeah, 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 I hear you. I think for me, it may have been The Fly, which I think counts as horror. That's like a bit of body horror. But that that is a messed up movie. Like I think the things that really get me more than like gore or anything or violence is just like deeply troubling situations like a man who's slowly being turned into a fly and nobody can help him <laughs> you know uh, like stuff like that just like really ooh. anyway i love that movie it was great and uh really watching horror early on really helped shape my worldview uh certainly reading dystopian sci-fi has prepared me for quite a lot Let's wrap things up here. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me on this episode. Where can we find your stuff on the internet? Where can people follow you? Well, for the most part, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Nautis. That's Chris with a K. So K-R-I-S-N-A-U-D-U-S. You can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter and, uh, you know, elsewhere. Um, I am at thefilmcast.com for my movie podcast, so check that out. And uh, email us at podcast at engadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. <laughs>